Hi, it's Steve Hargett on, and this is the new Future of Education show, interview show, soon to be a daily show. Our guest is Brian Alexander. We're going to talk about college today. Welcome, Brian. Hello. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. We are recording this show, so if you do ask to speak at some point, just know that we are um, going to be recording everything that takes place here. Brian, how crazy are things in higher ed right now? Well, uh, in many ways, a little less crazy than they were a year ago, uh, but uh, still things are pretty uh, confused. Uh, I think up about a month ago, folks were a lot more calm. There was the sense that the pandemic had been kind of beaten to the ground and that we were making progress in terms of uh, reducing infections and deaths. Uh, but right now, where it looks like we're experiencing a second wave or whatever number wave, uh, this is making uh, a lot of people in the higher ed very nervous, thinking, uh, okay, will the fall actually be some form of hybrid or will it be online or uh, what will we do? So that's one, one giant uh, problem uh, that's driving people crazy. Uh, another is the finances that I've written about for a long time, uh, that the business model for higher ed looks worse and worse. Uh, last year, we lost something like 650,000 people across American higher ed. Uh, and it would have been way, way worse if it hadn't been for the CARES Act. Uh, and those problems are still there, in fact, exacerbated because uh, enrollment's long decline has continued and deepened over the last year. And right now, it's a little early to say, but it doesn't look like there are a lot of signs for enrollment rebound this fall. Uh, the demographic forces behind this are still strong, uh, still pushing down on the numbers of uh, traditional age kids. Uh, many, many colleges and universities are still doing extreme tuition discounting, which uh, is an unsustainable business model. Uh, I mean, things look pretty dicey. Uh, almost a decade ago, I talked about peak higher education. Uh, it may be that we are still sliding down the wrong side of that peak. I really want to dive into that. Before we do so, are, are you tracking what's going on in Australia at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in terms of which? In terms of their response to climate change or their loss of enrollment because of pandemic? Or No, um, I was thinking specifically of the current lockdowns. And then yeah. a news report mm -hmm. I saw yesterday from New South Wales, where they have mm -hmm. 80 people in critical care, all of them having been vaccinated. Yeah. And well, this is, uh, is isn't this going to get really confusing for people? I mean, am I vaccinated? Am I not? Am I more risk vaccinated or more risk not vaccinated? Do I, you know, I I just have a feeling this is going to be really complicated. Uh, if if we focus on the pandemic, I think one problem is that uh, this is really confusing, especially for people, say the ninety nine percent of us who are not medical professionals. Uh, and there are all kinds of problems with this. And the problems are in many ways deeper than they look. Uh, we have the what some people call the, you know, the disinformation pandemic of you know, lots of stuff being spread around that's you know, bogus. Um, we also have the problem that a lot of people just don't have the time and or uh, professional training to be able to grasp a, a lot of these issues. Uh, we also have a problem that a lot of the science is now openly politicized. Um, and a lot of um, even more people perceive it as such for all kinds of reasons. I mean, you know, you have uh, 
some black people who are afraid of uh, the vaccine or skeptical of it because of their long record of being abused by the medical system. Uh, you have you know Trump diehards who just want to oppose this because of uh, of Biden. You have the wacky bipartisan anti-vax movement. They're still doing their thing. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. continues to just spew out stuff like that. Uh, and on top of that is the problem that, yeah, the vaccines are great. They are not only historical triumph, I mean, an incredible invention, really, really worth celebrating, but also they're really good at preventing you from being seriously sick or killed by COVID-19. Problem is they don't necessarily give you 100% um, uh, protection from being infected, which means you can carry COVID, even if you've been uh, vaccinated, depending on your vaccine. Uh, and it means you can get slightly ill, um, you know, basically having a cold. Uh, and on top of that, we are still struggling with trying to figure out what long COVID is. Uh, if your listeners don't, don't know the term, that refers to people who have been infected, who have been sick, and then have chronic pain or chronic tissue damage as a result lasting, well, as long as the pandemic has been around. And long COVID right now includes everything from neurological and brain damage uh, to joint pain, to exhaustion, chronic fatigue, as well as potential damages to the uh, uh, lungs and to the uh, blood circulation system. And we're still trying to understand it. Uh, I mean, numbers of who has long COVID are all over the map. I've heard 10 to 30% of people who have been infected. Uh, so you look at New South Wales and think, okay, this is an extreme case. Uh, like the Although the baseball players who were infected, who are living in a bubble and still got infected, um, you know, it looks like uh, this is going to be with us for uh, much longer. And when it comes to higher ed, this is really giving our planning, you know, all kinds of problems. Uh, do we mandate vaccines? The supermajority of campuses are not. Um, you know, do we, um, you know, get ready for a high flex semester again? Or do we prepare for a fully online semester? I mean, it's a, it's a planning nightmare, uh, and it's based on what I'm seeing of, of the huge resistance to vaccines. Uh, this will probably continue through the full semester. Yeah, it's a fascinating moment because it seems like things change day to day, but you have the, you know, the, the vaccine narrative, and then you have the Olympians who have contracted COVID. You have the White House staff who've contracted COVID. You have the numbers out of Israel. I, I think more than trying to get at what the truth is about COVID and the vaccines. I'm more interested in how the narrative breaks down. And then I want to kind of go in to talking with you about sort of scenario planning, not college level scenario planning as an institution, but individual scenario planning. Ooh, so ooh. let's start with my life experience. So I grew up on Stanford campus. My dad was Dean of admissions at Stanford. He then became the chairman of the college board and then later was dean of admissions at Princeton. He was a, when he was at Princeton, I didn't live with him. I was an adult. Um, so I grew up in kind of this, uh, oh, and I, and I went to Haverford College for two years, uh, mm. two and a half years as my first, I'd been on an exchange program in Brazil. My dad sent me the college applications he thought I should fill out. It was Haverford, Swarthmore, and Stanford. And mm. I, I got accepted at Haverford, went to visit, Really loved it, um, and you know had that sort of the Quaker college experience. Some of the things that go along with that, um, mm -hmm. and then transferred to Stanford for my final two years. 
But in my world, in this little Hargadon bubble world, the university experience was a transformative one for the student. There was this idea that I was going to become a better person, that there was, there was something profoundly valuable about thinking at higher levels. So if we kind of break down the, the difference between university and colleges as institutions, and then the student experiences, I know you, you, you probably talk a lot about the institutions, what's going on with the institutions. I'm kind of curious about the student side. And then, you know, once we sort of parse that a little, then I do want to kind of talk about how do students do scenario planning? How do they think about the future, the possible futures and what they would do? So did I just grow up in a completely uh, liberal arts bubble or have we actually really changed how we feel about college and universities over the last 30 or 40 years? Well, over the past 30 or 40 years, we have changed in a few ways. And by the way, I, I, I'm glad to hear that about your background. I think your, your Haverford experience helps explain why you're such a good listener um, and a good uh, discussant. Uh, I mean, one is that we really push hard to give, to really expand access to higher education. And we, and we succeeded. We grew numbers. Uh, so if we're, if we're talking about 1980 to 2020, uh, we just massively increased the number of people taking classes and getting degrees up until 2012. And then uh, every year since then, that number has gone down. Uh, but still, that was, a, that was a major, major shift. So if you just look at the number of Americans who have college degrees or some kind of college experience, it's much higher than it used to be. Uh, second is that we went through the big defunding of public higher education starting at the same time in the early 1980s. That just generally speaking, most, most uh, states have reduced the amount of money they spend um, on a per student basis across higher education. So you can see that as a little, a little hypocritical of states you know, insisting that more people get more college experience and then at the same time defunding them. And that led to the other huge, I mean, epochal development, which was financializing the cost of higher education so that now students go into debt. And of course, famously, that amount of debt is now approaching $2 trillion. Uh, it has all kinds of impacts on everything from demographics to economics, especially individual lives. We hear all kinds of horror stories. Um, I mean, it's really, it's just a, it's a nightmare situation. And it's one that we are still struggling with. And right now, as we speak, there is no solution on the table. Uh, you know, the Biden administration won't forgive student debt. Uh, you know, pushing for uh, more free tuition is still stalled out. Um, I mean, that's that's a, a huge problem. The other one that we should really add is the big shift in what classes and what majors and what degrees people get, uh, which is the big title shift away from the humanities and arts and towards STEM plus business. And the pandemic just accelerated that as far as I can tell, with even more people flocking to the full spectrum of allied health from you know nursing to psychology to surgery, pre-med in all kinds of ways. So you know, in many ways, uh, over your lifespan, higher education has really shifted. The other one to add, if we're going to look at the 40-year arc, is, of course, the uh, boom in online education, both distance learning you know, entirely online, uh, as well as you know, digitizing the campus experience, everything from having more digitization of back-end stuff like enrollment and uh, payments uh, to, you know, smart boards in classrooms and, uh, you know, combining the digital world with the face-to-face in all kinds of ways, you know, from digital humanities uh, classrooms to flipped classrooms. So, I mean, there's a, there have been quite a few, quite a few changes. So is it fair to say that 
college has always been a different experience for different groups of people. You know, for some who are going into medicine or engineering, it's very career oriented. For others like me, it was liberal arts and thinking oriented. It is the financialization of college a big part of the story as to why we began to describe college more in terms of its preparation for career and salaries rather than as a transformative experience? I think so. I, th I think I think the two became a kind of virtuous circle, um, you know, strengthening each other. So the more the more people feel they're going to be spending, the more they feel they're going to be in debt, the more they want to get out of the experience. Uh, which, by the way, is one more reason for the so-called uh, amenities arms race, where uh, you know if I'm going to be spending or my family's going to be spending or going to be seeing this much debt, I want to make sure that my dorm room doesn't look terrible, that the food is actually decent. Um, and then you get the flip side of people who are, um, you know, they're they're there to get a pre-law degree and become a lawyer or they're there to become a nurse. And then they think, OK, well, you know, I'm prepared to spend this much money and the debt is part of the cost of doing business. Um, and, and, you know, we still have uh, a lot of people who go to education, who take classes in order to learn how to learn, in order to learn how to think, in order to explore their horizons. And there's a lot of overlap. You know, people enter wanting to become an engineer and they leave being a philosopher and vice versa. Um, but I, I think in many ways, there's a kind of deepening professionalization. And that's also happened at the role of, uh, of campus staff. Uh, we have more and more staff administrators. I, I don't mean faculty. I mean, everything from librarians, technologists, all the way for VPs and presidents uh, who have more and more professionalization in their work. That is, we have more professional societies for, well, like you mentioned your father for admissions. Uh, we have for, um, for communication, for marketing, for development. And we have more people with more degrees in their field. People who go to school in order to become administrators, people with masters and PhDs in educational administration, which is another reason, by the way, for uh, the price of higher education to keep rising. We know that you know, in the United States, we generally speaking, the more credentialed you are, the bigger the salary you can command. Um, so that yeah, it really becomes a virtuous circle uh, where you know your idea of 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 going to college to take four years out and explore is less and less common. And the idea of going to college to become um, a specialist in cancer is more common. You don't have to see any malicious intent there to, to see sort of an emerging pattern, right? If you're, if there's a big industry around student loans, then there's an incentive to describe the investment in your schooling as having a payoff. Right. So mm -hmm. you can see and parent involvement, right? Parents who are thinking, okay, this is an investment in my child, you know, I'm putting this money in and what's the return on the investment. It's fascinating to think about about how that can have changed. I'm talking to Brian Alexander. We're using the hashtag college two zero. If you're in Twitter and want to make a comment. At some point, if you would like to make a an audio comment, you're welcome to request to be a speaker and we'll try and fit you in. Um, Brian I talked a lot, I've talked a lot to juniors and seniors in high school about the game of school and the way in which they don't feel largely the successful students that they're becoming good learners. They feel like they're good at a game. They know how to get the right grades, the grade point averages, the tests, the teachers, the homework, because they're anxious to get into college. How much has the college experience become the same kind of a game? 
Well, that's a great question. I mean, in many ways, you'd want to ask this question of currently enrolled students. Um, you know, I could bring my son on here. He's a senior history major at the University of Vermont. Uh, and I think he'd probably agree with you. Uh, he feels that he has to jump through a lot of hoops. He has to spend a lot of time navigating uh, all kinds of processes that don't have to do with learning. Um, and so I, I think there's uh, there's a bunch of that. And, it, you know, you could add to it the unique American nature of this, where American higher ed, unlike the rest of the world, has a very elaborate student life component, uh, where you don't just go to your campus, take your classes, and then go home, but instead we have, you know, college sports, we've got mental health, we have clubs of all kinds, uh, and that's a major part of it. We hire people whose full-time job is to provide that kind of, uh, of experience for our students. That's a, a part of the American higher education brand. And those are also, you know, more hoops to go through, just like high school students will join clubs and do service learning as boxes to tick for their applications. So it's, you know, another part of life. And the elite universities sell this as part of making themselves who they are. I mean, you go to a place, you mentioned Princeton and Stanford uh, for your father. I, one of the reasons you go there is to rub shoulders with the elite and to join the elite. And of course, joining, you know, the different fraternities or eating clubs at Princeton, uh, et cetera, is a way to build that kind of social capital. So I, I would consider that, uh, a form of game playing and and the rewards are pretty clear like any game well played uh you've got good chances of getting uh good outcomes um i mean you can't take this too far because the other on the other side of this we uh elite universities are only a fraction a tiny fraction of american higher education i mean i would look at the the hoop jumping that you go through at a community college or at a basically open enrollment state university, which combined enroll the majority of American uh, students. And there, there are different hoops to jump through. Uh, Sarah Goldrick Rabb has described the you know, incredibly arduous uh, financial problems people suffer in trying to balance uh, families, work, um, more families, more work uh, with class, especially if people are on the wrong side of the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, and on top of that, you also have just the, the difficulties that a lot of first-generation students experience. Uh, you asked me about changes in the past 40 years. 40 years ago, <clears throat> we more or less maxed out of the, uh, of the students who had parents who had some college or university experience. Now we're really enrolling many, many students whose parents have none of that. Uh, so they have extra hurdles to go through in order to learn how things work. And that can be really daunting and that can kick people out of the experience, leaving them with the worst possible outcome, some classes, no degree and a pile of debt. Uh, and some universities are awful at this. Um, I've heard from uh, you know the CUNY system, which does tremendous work, you know, with very little budget uh, on uh, serving you know, in many ways, um, you know, the broadest spectrum of uh, students that America has to offer. And yet the bureaucracy there can be uh, very, very challenging. I've heard students refer to the experience of navigating it as being cunified, uh, you know, like, like being fried or deep fried and not in a good way. Um, so I, I, think, I think a lot of that makes, makes higher ed uh, very difficult to navigate, which is why, if I can add just, just one more point, uh, uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom uh, has this very powerful book on for-profit higher education. And she points out that one of the reasons for-profit schools succeeded for so long was they invested a lot in the kind of ingestion process. I mean, they're really good at marketing, market themselves really carefully, and also assigned a lot of resources to getting people to enroll. 
uh, you know, every, arranging for financial aid, making sure the paperwork was done. I mean, much more so than most other colleges and universities. And that helped get them uh, students for better or for worse. Uh, I, I think for a lot of higher education, we're still working on that. If your son is right, I know this is not a, an entirely fair statement, but it's a lot of money to pay to learn to be a worker. <laughs> right? It's like, wow, it's so interesting. Okay, we have Karen who's asked to speak. Uh, those of you who've, who've sort of raised your hand in here, we'll ask you to ask a quick question and then um, uh, allow uh, Brian to answer and then we'll move on to the next one. Okay, Karen, I'm approving you. Let's see how long it takes for you to be able to get um, the microphone. Are you there? If you are, Karen, we can't hear you. If you're on a PC, you actually have to be on a um, Android or iOS device. So Keel, I don't know if I'm saying your name right. I'm approving you. If you've got a question for Brian or a comment, please go ahead. Steve, did you acknowledge me? Yes, I did. Go ahead. Thank you, Steve. Uh, by the way, Brian and I are friends. I come on his forum a lot. And we talk by email and, and LinkedIn. I, I just wanted to make a quick comment, and Brian and I have discussed this a lot. I think it's that four-year degree mandate with that extended seat time that's the big factor in the costs. And uh, I, I start I, I'm seeing that start to go away with with more and more employers embrace alternative credentialing routes or, or, or uh, direct job training. So maybe you guys could just discuss that. I think that's going to be a big threat to enrollments. Thank you. Brian, do you have well, a Keel, I do. Keel, it's always great to hear from you. Uh, I really appreciate your work, especially on credentialing and on uh, accreditation. I mean, it's just always a delight to hear from you. Uh, I think in many ways, employers are still locked into the uh, sheepskin effect. So for listeners who haven't heard this, this is the term that refers to the fact that a lot of employers value the degree, the associates, the BA, the BS, the MA, whatever it is, uh, much more so than learning. Uh, Brian Kaplan has a, a very powerful book where he argues pretty conclusively that um, no matter how much learning you achieve, at a university or a college, it has no impact on your status in the labor market until you get that degree. Uh, you could go to Princeton for 12 years, and if you don't have that degree, it doesn't matter. You may as well have not gone. Um, so the sheepskin effect, I think, is very powerful. And the the full degree, the macro degree, if you will, the PhD, the associates, uh, it stands in for more than just learning. It stands in for more than, okay, I, I have a BA in, in poli-sci, therefore I know a certain amount about political science. It also means for a lot of employers that you have a certain degree of maturity, uh, that you have been able to successfully accomplish such a, a major project, and you can do that. Now, micro-degrees, micro-credentials of all kinds are out there. They're being issued. Um, uptick, is, it, uptick seems to be slow. Um, and in part because I think it's uh, more work for employers um, that they have to understand, they have to suss out, you know, are these credentials any good? What do they stand for? Um, and also, I think a lot of people still aren't using them in, in their own work. It's possible that we can turn to another source, which is you know uh, using CLEP and other tools to have adults who are able to uh, basically pass out of a lot of requirements and can get a faster time to degree 
Um, but right now, we know that uh, the four-year degree is kind of a myth. Less than half of students actually graduate with an undergrad degree in four years. Um, the majority take uh, four-plus uh, to graduate. Same with an associate's, associate's degree. I think the median number is about three years instead of two. Um, but I think we need more and more employers to turn to turn around and accept someone who may have gone to university for three years and has a micro-credential in what that employer wants. Uh, and for the employer to hire that student, I wouldn't say graduate necessarily, uh, because of that. And we'd need to see more of that uh, at work. Uh, Kiel is also very interested in, uh, in the kind of learning assessment being uh, outsourced from individual institutions. Um, so, Keel, if you'll forgive me for saying so, I mean, this is a very powerful idea. That is, if I get my, you know, this hypothetical uh, BA in poli-sci, um, the reason I get the BA is because everyone at the university has assessed me to have passed through all of these uh, different status points. Um, but if we can outsource that so that the university doesn't determine it, but some other third party, um, then we might be able to lead us to more flexibility um, and uh, perhaps, perhaps streamline time to degree. I want to be able to move on to student decision-making, students looking at college. So, Kiel, I see that you maybe wanted to follow up. If we've got time, I'll come back to you. Um, Karen, I've re-invited you. If you can turn your mic on, let us know. I'm going to ask Brian a question while we're waiting on that. So part of the game of school conversations that I've had, Brian, have revolved around the fact that the schools actually perform a function different than what they say they're performing. So say the K to 12 world, it would be that schools help to magnify the potential and capability of every student, of each individual student. But in fact, they're kind of a sorting mechanism for uh, what Plato called the noble lie, helping people get into the right lane in society and know what their expectations can be. How much could you describe the college or university experience that way, that what we say about it is not actually what it does? I think most people in higher education would actually accept that um, because we refer, for example, to the hidden curriculum, uh, which is the whole set of learning that you pick up outside of formal coursework. Uh, so if I'm going to you know, take classes in anatomy and physiology, yeah, I'm going to learn about the bone structure and the nervous system and all of that. Uh, but at the same time, I'm going to learn how to live on my own if I'm not already doing so. Uh, I'm going to learn how to navigate a bureaucracy. Uh, I'm going to learn how to socialize with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, and I'm going to learn how to point myself into the job market and, and still more. Uh, I think other people, uh, especially people uh, politically on the left, would also say that, uh, you know, to go back to your earlier point about changes over the past 40 years, one of the huge changes that we, I still think, haven't really fully grasped as the enormous boom in income inequality uh, I mean, from roughly 1940 to about 1980. Uh, the United States was economically the least unequal we'd ever been for various reasons. And then starting around 1980, income inequality picked up again and it's roared along. It hasn't slowed down. So now, I mean, if you want to look for an analogy, we're like roughly 1900, 1910 levels. Um, uh, a Swiss reinsurance company said that we are at a gilded age 2.0. Uh, and this really impacts higher education because the last time we overhauled American higher education in a big way was in the 1960s. Yeah, you know, that's when we decided to just like massively build out the community college system. 
which is just incredible. You know, that's when tons of teachers' colleges and normal colleges became uh, four-year undergrads, where four-year colleges sprouted master's programs and PhDs. That's when we had the Federal Department of Education and federal student loans. I mean, and that's when the idea that everybody should get more and more post-secondary experience really took off. And that's when we designed this. Well, in the 1960s, again, we were economically much less unequal. Uh, I heard a, a stat which is looking at uh, George Romney, uh, I'm sorry, Mitt Romney and his father. Um, when it, and I'll, I'm going to fudge the numbers, but it was something like when his father in the 1960s was the head of a major auto company, he earned something like 20 times what a line worker did. But when his son, Mitt, was um, working at that financial enterprise, he earned something like 800 times what uh, a worker earned. Um, and that's that's our time. So you think now you're not preparing students for a career in the middle class, per se. Uh, you if you're an elite institution, again, to go back to your father's to Stanford and, and Princeton, it, it's pretty explicit. Uh, you are being pointed towards the um, the one percent. That's their job. That's their that's their brand. Um, otherwise, you're being put to work in some part of a rapidly changing labor economy. We thought it would be a creative economy. We thought it would be the information economy. And while that is true in terms of capitalization, you know, you look at a company like Apple, um, just how much they're worth, it has not been true in terms of the labor force. I mean, Apple employs a tiny handful of people in the United States, for example. Um, instead, what we have is a service economy overwhelmingly, you know, not manufacturing, um, not uh, intellectual labor. The majority of people work in the service industry in, in various forms from you know, education to, uh, to healthcare. And that is something which we are still kind of trying to fit higher education into. Um, and that, I think, if you want to know what the, the hidden part is, that's one that's really not spoken clearly. Um, and it's one that we're not I don't think we've really grasped, much like we haven't really grasped that we're living in a new Gilded Age. So no one at Stanford is going to remember me in the history department, but I was a history major. I was, there was no illustrative career for me there, but you know I do come at some of this from the historical perspective. And there are a lot of factors here that kind of tie into that Gilded Age concept, right? I mean, a sort of runaway debt and the use of debt to solve problems sort of unsustainable social and economic circumstances. And if I put on my historian's hat, these aren't great signs, right? They, they're, they're potentially the uh, Kondratiev or the, I, I can't remember, there are like three different ways of referring to the 80-year cycle of economic mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. boom and bust, um, Titler cycle. So mm -hmm. let's say that I'm a junior or senior in high school and I'm trying to make decisions about my life. And it, let's say that I somehow miraculously have discovered the scenario planning concept that I remember from Shell Oil, right? Which is you say, okay, what are the three to five most uh, likely possible scenarios or outcomes in the future? And how do I make a plan that would actually work in any of them? So let's say one scenario is we're in for a little bit of a collapse and maybe not a little collapse. We've got you know, uh, the, you know, the potential for a, for a large monetary shift. Um, you know, we have, we have signs that the banking industry is in trouble. And on the other end, let's say that, you know, there are booms and busts and we're going to get through this and there will, there'll be some kind of, uh, Harry Dent like demographic thing that will happen and, and things stay strong. 
what would you tell a junior or senior in high school about planning for the next four to six years? What, what are their, what would be good options for them to be thinking about? Well, I, my applause to you for not just mentioning scenario planning, but also for going back to uh, one of its key uh, foundations, which is the uh, Shell Oil scenarios uh, that Pierre Wack came up with. So, I mean, as a futurist, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear this. Um, you know, scenario development uh, is usually aimed at, uh, at organizations, um, but we can definitely use it for individuals. And if you're looking four to six years out, I mean, one thing to do is to identify the major forces that are shaping your individual future and uh, what they might be. Uh, and sometimes they are the forces that directly act upon you. And sometimes they're the ones that shape the field that you're going to be stepping into. So, I mean, one thing to think about uh, is the different options you have uh, for a degree that points to something on the job market. And it might be that uh, you, if you're a high school student right now, that you're still not sure. Uh, that high school threw a lot of stuff at you uh, and you had a lot of things going on and you're not quite sure where you want to go. And it might be that uh, college or university experience is a place for you to go in order to continue to suss that out. Uh, liberal arts colleges are fantastic for that because they have such a great hands-on approach. They have such a uh, you know, close relationship between students and faculty and they really you know, love the way that student intention and exploration can cross disciplinary boundaries. Uh, community colleges are also great because they're incredibly inexpensive. You know, when people talk about the booming prices of higher ed, they just cut out community colleges in the discussion completely. But community colleges just do heroic work uh, with incredibly paltry resources. And again, that's a place to explore. But the other is to simply go online and learn as much as you can and see where your brain takes you. Uh, you know, use the full architecture of the web of hyperlinking and social connections to try to learn. Look at all the open resources that are out there. Everything from open classware to just materials that are published through Creative Commons license so that you can let your mind explore and then share what you learn. You know, whatever way you, that makes sense to you and it feels for you. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to do that. But once you start to feel that direction, that tug, that current that pulls on you that says, you know, I really do feel like I want to be an architect or I really, really want to help uh, senior citizens um, and make their lives as good as possible. Whatever that tug pulls, then, then you want to start you know, pursuing that and look for some kind of degree. And along the way, follow Keel's direction and start picking up micro degrees and micro credentials. But you also have to keep in mind there's so many other forces pushing back and forth. Just to mention a couple of the macro ones, I mean, one of them is the question of climate change. And this is something, I mean, I'm finishing my next book on, and I'm happy to talk about this forever, but this is going to change, among other things, where you want to live. I mean, so right now, today, going to school in Oregon might not seem like a good idea, for example, um, or, you know, traveling, say, to um, uh, northern Siberia might look pretty bad uh, because of all these heat waves. But you also want to think about career paths. I mean, think about green jobs down the road and also think about some of the traditional jobs that mutate as a result. For example, uh, thinking about psychology, uh, which is booming right now, in part because we have so much mental harm caused by the pandemic. But also people are going to be suffering and some already are suffering mental dislocation because of climate change. And what happens when the land that you grew up on is now something completely different? 
you know, that it's boiled up or it's underwater or it's just mutated thanks to changes in uh, plant life and animals. Uh, some psychologists have been referring to this as climate grief or anticipatory climate grief. So maybe psychology is a field to pursue a little more closely. You think about computer science, and right now we're in this really incredible dividing point with our global cyber infrastructure. Either we are going to do a lot more with it because we're going to travel a lot less. You know, you can go back to Sweden's idea of flight shaming, right, where um, flying all over the place in airplanes is a bad idea because it contributes so much to climate change. Right? Um, and so instead, you want to take uh, trains or you want to take boats or just travel a lot less, in which case the demand for IT will just shoot up like it did over the pandemic, uh, where people are going to want to travel, quote unquote, but they'll experience people through text through images, through video, through virtual reality, and so on. Uh, so that might be either you want to pursue a degree in IT or you want to make sure that another degree, another course of study, has as much computation built into it as possible. You know, if you become a poli-sci major, you want to learn how to use stats packages, you want to learn how to use mapping software, and so on, for example. The other possibility uh, is that we will see the cyber infrastructure that we now have as a climate emitter. Uh, that's something that makes the climate crisis worse. Uh, the most extreme example of this, kind of the bad guy for all of this, is Bitcoin mining, uh, which uses an unbelievably huge amount of electricity, which means it's usually burning a lot of carbon. Uh, so do we start banning uh, Bitcoin mining? Do we start banning the use of blockchain? Do we, in fact, take a look at high-demand uh, computing forces, say animation, and try to step back from that a little bit? I mean, this is a, a major dividing point, and there's a lot of furious research going back and forth on this. Uh, my instinct is that we'll probably do a combination of both. Um, but that's another thing to keep in mind. And then to, to come back to the whole question of the pandemic, I mean, as Steve, you began by talking about this, we're still in the throes of this. We're still fighting this. The need for people to help the pen, to help us through the pandemic is enormous. I mean, I, I mentioned psychology, right? You know, helping people get through the grief of having been badly sick. That's a trauma at times. Uh, losing family members, losing your job, uh, all kinds of effects. It may be that people want to work in geriatrics because geriatrics is woefully understaffed right now. And we know that overwhelmingly the deaths and terrible injuries were suffered by people over 70. So it may be that people want to help there or they want to help in nursing, just trying to help care for people who are going through this. We've done some tremendous work in improving our quality of care over the past year and a half. Uh, I mean, those, those are a couple of the macro directions to keep in mind. When it comes to debt, um, right now, I would do everything possible to avoid racking up debt. And we have a lot of options for it, but you might not have much of a choice. If, for example, uh, you are um, 18 and your family is poor, or either they've been poor for a while or you have family members who lost their jobs, you might need to go into debt, not just to pay your tuition, but also to help pay your family's room and board in their house or their apartment. Uh, it may be that if you're homeless, that going to debt is the only way that you can actually bring money into your life. Um, so I'd be as careful with that as possible. I'm going on at length here, Steve, because it's a great question. Um, but I would build scenarios out of those kind of materials. The conclusion I've come to is that it's really important for those of us who are older 
to say to those who are younger, pick something that you, you care about, that you can do well, that you can, or learn to do well, where you can contribute, and understand that that doesn't always lead to the vision of success that we have. Meaning pick something that you care enough about or you're good enough at that even if the six, the Jeff Bezos success doesn't come, that you're happy about the role that you're playing in society. I think that's a very positive way of looking at this. I think that's a very reassuring way. Um, and I would keep that in mind. Uh, and I would say that to people at the same time, I'd also, I mean, as a futurist, I have to be open to all possibilities, right? I mean, I'm kind of notorious for having advised people in higher education to worry about a pandemic, um, you know, before the pandemic struck. We have a lot of possibilities of chaos uh, that are very unsettling. The great science fiction writer William Gibson has a, a terrific recent novel called The Peripheral, in which sometime over the next century, we experience what people ironically call the jackpot. Uh, someone asks, what is the jackpot? Was it you know, climate change? It's, no, no it's, it was everything. It was climate change. It was income inequality. It was civil strife. Um, it was environmental damage. Um, and as a result, in this novel, there are far fewer people in 2100 than there were in 2000. We have all kinds of possibilities that loom ahead of us. Um, I mean, right now, uh, when we just take a look at climate change, we're clearly handling it very badly. Um, you know, I think historians will look back on, on this time uh, and say that we have bungled this badly, uh, and that would be a charitable assessment. There's actually a, a certain satirical documentary uh, which refers to our time as the age of stupid, um, and that's not bad. Um, but we could also look in the United States at how badly we've handled the pandemic. I mean, yeah, we've had some triumphs. We've had some great things. I mentioned uh, the vaccines, which are really, really, truly amazing. We look at the uh, just backbreaking work of so many people in the medical fields and the front lines. Um, but at the same time, um, all kinds of political figures screwed this up badly, from Trump to um, uh, Cuomo, New York. Um, we as Laurie Garrett and others have pointed out, we don't really have an effective national public health strategy. We, it, the euphemism is it's federalized, which means we defer public health to states, which in fact defer to state to counties and towns, which means our public health is a shambles, which is one of the reasons why we responded so badly to the pandemic and continue to. Uh, if we continue to do this, as horrible as COVID is, it's not the worst thing that could have happened in pandemics. Uh, I've heard some medical people refer to it as pandemic on easy mode. Um, you know, where there are a lot of worse things that could have hit us and still can. And climate change accelerates that because it scrambles a lot of biomes. It, it forces animals and plants to relocate and move back and forth. We've already seen this, for example, with uh, Lyme disease, which is spreading outside the normal bounds because of changes in forests, which have changed deer tick behavior. So we can see more and more of that. Uh, our economics, clear, as I described before, were clearly very, very unequal. Uh, and the forces driving that are completely unstopped. Uh, in fact, one of the, you mentioned your background as, as a history major. I mean, when we take a look at uh, Jeff Bezos and um, uh, the other zillionaire flying into space, for me, I'm definitely reminded of the 1890s, you know, and, and the JP Morgans, the Cornelius Vanderbilts. 
uh, in many ways, that's our time, which can yield some amazing achievements. Uh, For all of his flaws, Elon Musk has managed to single-handedly reinvigorate the space program or uh, or human spaceflight, for example. Um, On the other hand, it can lead to disasters. I mean, I'm waiting for the first zillionaire to mount a geoengineering effort that really hurts people, uh, either directly or indirectly. Uh, We also saw from 2008 that our financial system is incredibly fragile, definitely rigged, and capable of producing all kinds of terrible side effects. And we barely regulated it after that. And so something else could happen. My point is to this teenager, I would tell them to think not just about resilience, which is actually a pretty good word for this, but also to bear in mind all the directions where this train could go off the rails. And to think about that as they think about their course of study and their course of life. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. I think it was it was the uh, it was Corey Tenboom. Uh, was it in Amsterdam? And it was related to the uh, hiding of the Jews and her family. I don't remember the the hiding place. And uh, there's a scene in which. She's getting on the train and her, her dad, uh, she's asking some questions that are really hard for a young person to understand the answers to. And her dad says to her something like, you see this suitcase? You know, I can pick it up. It's heavy and I can lift it up and put it up on the top shelf. So sometimes I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to pick up the suitcase. I, f- I feel like what you've just described is sort of this sort of scary moment of, can we describe that to our youth without terrifying them? And, and maybe there's a need for a little bit of terrifying. I don't want to have this question presume chaos is the outcome, but it does seem that for intentional institutional change to take place, you need an alignment of interests at every stage of the change. And in the absence of that in an emergency, you're more likely to have collapse than intentional change. Am I saying the same thing you're saying or am I being too dramatic? Oh, I don't think you're being dramatic at all. Uh, I think I think it's quite possible. No, the thing is we, we have a world which is in terms of total wealth richer than ever before definitely more interconnected than ever before in human history uh, with achievements in science and other forms of knowledge that are unmatched in human history. And so that gives us a lot that we can rely upon. Uh, so one, if, if things break apart, if we lack that form of alignment, uh, it is still possible that we can proceed in multiple groups and chunks. Uh, so it may be, for example, uh, we're already seeing this sociologically at the very wealthy really live in a kind of separate nation. Um, and that uh, that fits into our economy and our politics. Um, you know, we uh, you could think about people who identify by other identities that really carve them out or institutions that fail. Uh, or institutions, rather, that, that that shape in ways that diverge from each other. But I think for academic institutions trying to support such students uh, in this world, I think we, in many ways, are we need a bit more fear, uh, a bit more terror, uh, because we are proceeding in many ways uh, in a line of optimism and continuance, which we really shouldn't. I don't know if you saw the former um, head of Sally May, um, this past week expressed his shock at how high student loans were. 
So this is the guy who ran Sally May, and he was surprised and only really realized it when his grandchildren started paying tuition. Uh, and he used the word criminal mm-hmm. to describe the situation. Right? Um, we're not touching that. We, we haven't touched this at all. Uh, we're still proceeding. In fact, we've, you know, we've done our best to try and cut prices. Uh, for example, in the United States, we transformed the professoriate from a majority that were tenure track to a minority as tenure track. Uh, the majority are either people who are full-time, no tenure, or more likely part-time, uh, who are incredibly cheap to offer, which among other things, being a humanitarian disaster, also lowers the price of college. Uh, it's less to pay. Um, and we're doing all kinds of other things from you know, automation to pushing on open education resources. Uh, but the fact is that higher education is still an expensive beast to operate. Uh, it doesn't scale very well. And it's one that is very brittle as it heads forward. Uh, we have to look for ways that higher education can be more resilient, not just the students that we are lucky enough to be able to teach and support. And that kind of resilience is is the job that we really have to settle into. In that case, I think some fear and terror go a long way. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this to be dystopian. I'm not saying this because my family is Russian and I'm trying to be scary. I'm, as a futurist, again, I have to look at all possibilities. And there are, there are wonderful positive directions for us to anticipate. You know, you could think about the uh, Star Trek style utopia or the positive future depicted by Ian Banks in his culture novels. Um, there are all kinds of wonderful achievements going on right now that, are, that we should just celebrate. Um, but we need to keep in mind that full gamut, especially if you're, if you're a, a high school student now, you're in charge of your life. And if you're running an institution, you're a steward of that enterprise. We have to keep our eyes as wide open as possible and be ready to hoist that giant briefcase, that giant suitcase as needed. That's a great place to stop. Brian, you're so interesting to listen to. Uh, David and Keel had their hands raised, Karen as well, but uh, we're going to... we hear from Karen? I, I would love to hear from Karen if we had, because she, uh, we couldn't get her in before. Yeah, Karen, I'm sorry. It, it, I've invited you, but it doesn't look like you've been able to turn your microphone on, and it may be because you have to be on an Android or iOS device um, or look, look for some way. Alternatively, at futureofeducation.com, there is a discussion forum. Oh, Karen, you are live. Let's see if we can hear you. I'll keep talking until we hear from Karen. Alternatively, you can go to futureofeducation.com. There's a discussion forum on College 2.0 that I've just started. There's a discussion forum on Brian. And you can comment or communicate uh, in either of those. That's futureofeducation.com. Karen, we're not hearing you. Hi. Can you you hear me now? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That is so loud. <laughs> um, did I lose you guys again? No, we're here. Nope. I'm still there. Okay. Well, I just accidentally dropped in on this conversation and it's been very fascinating. And more kind of one thing that I hadn't been hearing about this conversation is really we talk about technology and we talk about future of work. And really, if we talk, think about what's happened with technology the technology company. And I don't care if you're the ice cream store that you're running or managing, you have social media, you're using um, technology for that. 
to bring people in. You're you, you're utilizing um, systems which you know before the old school accounting system isn't working anymore. You have automated systems. There's mostly you know credit card payments and etc. And I'm I'm as as an educator, I'm not seeing that that realization that that's just kind of technology in itself is embedded in the work life. I don't care. And you mentioned it briefly, um, I believe, Brian, when you talked about um, how the... Um, how, you know, if you're a political science major, you need to know GPS systems, you need to know statistics, etc. And so I guess talking about this, there needs to be that infusion and recognition of that. Karen, Hello? Did I lose you guys? No, can you hear me now? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Karen go, but Brian, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, uh, Karen, that's an absolutely important point, and 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 this is something which is difficult for education to respond to, especially at higher ed, um, where we really do have to make sure that we integrate uh, technology into our curriculum. This is something I've been working on for about thirty years, and it's something which has to be done carefully. I mean, that is, on the one hand, we need to have uh, hands-on practical experience of people using tools, uh, you know, digital video, animation, you know, making GIFs, whatever. Um, but at the same time, we need to have the intellectual tools on top of that to help think through these critically. And that can include learning the history of the internet, uh, it can include looking at critical assessments of technology, like Shoshana Zuboff's critique, for example, of surveillance capitalism. Um, and I think that combination of, of, of tools is, is a great way of thinking about this. When I was uh, teaching in the 1990s, uh, a colleague and I came up with a minor, not a major, but a minor called Information Technology Studies. And uh, that was kind of like the, the, the steroidal version of this, that you, know, you could attach that minor to any major. Uh, and it would give you a lot of content. That might be a good way of thinking of this, or uh, you could build that through other mechanisms, like through a core curriculum, or indeed within an academic department, um, you know, to have uh, uh, more and more class work, either as an individual class or a unit or as a module, uh, to have that built in. But we really need to have that kind of integration so that when students leave, if they graduate or just stop taking classes, they have more power to be able to engage with a world which is increasingly saturated with cyberspace. It feels, Brian, like the, the seismic effects of the internet are still hard to grasp. Right, the connection with everyone, the ability to challenge narratives, the, the information sharing. It still feels like every day I wake up and think, wow, this is, these are huge changes. You're a futurist. Is the next sort of dramatic shift like that going to come from the quantum world? Or, or do you think we're going to be kind of blown away by the ways in which life changes from that research? We have a lot of different directions that we can go in. Uh, I mean, the quantum world, if we, if, if this manages to take off, and right now it's still in just you know, really, really baby steps, um, that has some fascinating power, uh, everything from boosting cryptography to doing some interesting stuff with quantum entanglement, to have real real-time connections at speed, and the possibility of really, if we can build actual full computers or computer analogs out of this, um, to have really, really small computers, much smaller than now, uh, which would be you know, pretty astonishing. Um, 
and but we also have other technological possibilities in 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 all kinds of directions. Uh, think, for example, about the direct brain computer interfaces. There's been some astonishing work on that. I mean, I mentioned Elon Musk, uh, Neuralink was one of his, but we also have a lot of medical work of just being able to connect you know software to brain tissue. Uh, and some of it's terrifying, some of it's invasive. You can just think about the abuses, of course. Um, but these are also ways to try to expand the human sensorium uh, to enhance our senses or add to them, uh, as well as to help people who are disabled in different ways. Uh, the biological revolution is one that's just ticking along that we really don't pay enough attention to. The uh, pandemic uh, vaccine is just one sign of that. Um, but, you know, the whole world of biohacking is really, really beginning to run along. Um, and we need to watch that really carefully. I mentioned the space, uh, you know, aggressively growing right now. Uh, I mean, this is unfolding in a whole bunch of different directions. Again, with with Musk, his Starlink has had the, uh, the bad cost of blocking a lot of Earth-based astronomy. On the other hand, it may be the most powerful step towards addressing the digital divide that we've ever taken. Um, that's just one aspect to think of this. Uh, we think about asteroid mining and space mining, thinking about settling Mars or colonizing the moon. I mean, all of these are dreams from the 1960s, and we now we may now actually be starting to realize them. Uh, we also have, I mean, we're just beginning to touch AI, and this is something I wanted to circle back to before. I mean, if we have the ability to make artificial intelligence that is powerful enough to perform job functions at scale, then we have some interesting challenges. I mean, I, I, I've seen three scenarios for this. Uh, one is that we may face a time of increasing underemployment and unemployment. Another is that we may see jobs transform, like Karen and I were talking about, so that in not just technology, but we have a lot more AI involved in our jobs. And the third is that our jobs mutate and transform into something else um, so that we have new types of positions. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of resilience I have in mind for a 16-year-old right now to think about. That those are three very different futures. And they may all happen at the same time, just in different places and in different ways. Uh, but we need to handle and think about all of those. Uh, not to mention thinking about the technological changes that uh, and innovations that dealing with the climate crisis are inspiring. Everything from developments in material science to direct uh, carbon capture from the air uh, to thinking about built new architectural materials that don't use carbon. I mean, concrete soaks up a huge amount of, con of uh, carbon dioxide right now. So what do we replace it with? What kind of buildings do we design? I mean, the technological you know, possibilities right now are just immense and manifold. Um, and so those are just a few to think about right now. And I'm being pretty conservative. One of my favorite books is Robert Epstein's Teen 2.0. And it's, mm. it's, a, it's a tome, it's huge. But part of the argument he makes is that in most cultures historically, youth became adults at the age of 12 or 13. And so I think I, you're right. I was a little bit hesitant to put too much on the shoulders of a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old getting ready to, to think about their future. But maybe that's exactly what they need. It may be. It may be. Um, take a look at, if you look at young adult literature right now, it's, uh, it's full of all kinds of amounts of chaos, uncertainty, and terror, uh, lots and lots of dystopia aimed precisely at that audience. Um, I think also we should look, you know, look for the positive, uh, look for fiction like a uh, solar punk 
that tries to imagine positive ways forward. And there's a whole school of uh, architecture now trying to imagine the future cities for the climate crisis. But I think talking about climate change in higher ed should be the subject of another one of your sessions. I'm afraid I've blown past your hour limit quite thoroughly. You've been a very generous host. Uh, you've been generous, Brian. It's such a delight to talk to you. Thank you. So this will be posted at futureofeducation.com in a day or two. Uh, please consider joining us for future interviews. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much, Steve. Take care. Bye now.